On today's episode of the Meaning Lot Junkards, no Bundy today, but we are still going to dive into all the big topics. First off, we will dive into free agency, contacting free agents, agents starting today as of this podcast. We'll talk about who could potentially the Browns be looking at in this market and what fills their needs the most. The second block, we'll talk about this Indians roster, how they performed in spring training, who will make the team, who will not, who's to be concerned about, and who's to be cautiously optimistic about. And in the third block, we'll talk about the trades involving Kevin Zeitler and the cutting of Jamie Collins. How do the Browns fill those spots? And if they don't do it through the draft, would they possibly look at some free agents out there on the market to fill those spots? All of that and more coming up, but for that, here's Hammy. A swing and a pop-up. First base side foul ground playable. Perez, Santana, Santana makes the catch! Ball game! The Indians have won the American League pennant! And Cleveland, for the sixth time ever, you will have a World Series! Colquitt asks him, are you ready? This is to win it. Snap is back. Ball down. The kick on the way. Line drive. The kick is good. With two seconds left in overtime, the Browns have won it. A line drive that almost had yellow paint on it as it went over the crossbar. 18 strikeouts for Corey Kluber. Blew it right by him. Here we go. Fourth down and 10 at the 50-yard line. In the backfield, Booker will be the running back. On the left hip of Keenum, two receivers right, two left, Lacoste in motion. On fourth down, Keenum waits, takes the snap, he bobbles it, stumbles, he got hit, he got sacked! He got sacked! Peppers! Peppers got him! He got him! Peppers got him! Pour a little pepper on it! The Browns are going to win it! Today is Monday, March 11th, 2019, and we pronounce Bundy to be dead. Gone. Well, not necessarily. He. Uh, so it's weird. We don't really discuss it during the week, but we all kind of have this unspoken of a, a agreement that our show will be recorded either late Saturday or late Sunday. And it was known that you were going to be out of town on Saturday. So it, it was kind of, I thought, in my opinion, everybody knew, and I was going to be here in the office running a sporting event, that we would be uh, recording this on Sunday evening. Am I am I wrong? No, no, that's uh, very accurate. Um, I mean, this is kind of just typical Bundy at this point. We knew this was going to be an issue once we brought him on, so T's and P's to Bundy. And it's it's funny. So we get the text of him saying, "Oh crap, I have a dinner at six. I can't make it." Uh, I, I first off, of why would you even schedule something like this in the time slot where you know specifically we gather to record said podcast? Uh, well, what dinner runs for over two hours? Yeah, that's what we said too. You said started at six. It's currently eight thirty on Sunday night, and he couldn't make it technically, right? Yeah, no, I uh, I called him on on my drive back into uh, Columbus, and he said that no time would work for him because we were trying to be flexible with him. Because initially the thought was okay around like seven thirty, so then we're just gonna, if need be, push it back just so he could join us. But no time worked for him. But I mean. Like you said, dinner is supposed to take three hours long. What I can only assume, and I'm again, we don't say people's names on the podcast. We keep everybody in respect. Um, but I have one person in mind, and I don't know what he thinks he's going to get out of it. But all I can say is good luck, soldier, because everybody needs it going through that path. Hey, maybe he uh, maybe he found someone on uh, Tutter. <laughs> oh, man. 
we could talk for days about his history of trying to date women and whatnot. So Ooh. honestly, that's a topic for another day. Maybe we can save that for when he's back in. That'll be no one let if you're listening to this and you're a friend of Sal, do not tell him we talked about this because we will bring it up next week and blind sign him. All right. Uh yeah, as you could probably hear it in my voice, I've been sick. So dealing with Sal's BS today has been nothing short of uh testing my patience. But uh not only that, but it's also our teams in basketball are in just the worst possible position you want to be in as a fan because you're just on the edge of your seat and not for a good reason. Right. You never know what team is going to show up on any given day. Like for Dayton personally, you, uh, a couple weekends ago, he laid a goose egg against Rhode Island and then four days later just blow LaSalle out. I mean, I, there's a little bit of a difference in talent there between LaSalle and in the roadies, but at the same point, it's just like, can't you get it, just figure it out for a season or just a simple stretch and not just have all this variance? And meanwhile, Ohio State makes a miraculous 23 point comeback with seven minutes remaining against Wisconsin to tie it up in the final minute, send it to overtime only to just go cold in overtime and lose it. I've been on the record saying I would rather lose by 30 than. Coming all the way back and getting my heart broken. And I know that's completely hot take. No one wants to agree with that. Why would you want your team to suffer? But I'm just speaking as a fan separately from the, the this whole argument. Separately, just me as a fan. That heartbreak is so much worse. I, I would definitely agree with that. Like, yeah, you can wallow in your sorrows a little bit. But over the course of a game, if you're getting blown out, you can adjust to that mentally and emotionally. Whereas if you make a great comeback, then you have hope. And then to have that fall short is one of the worst feelings in the uh, in the sporting world. Not that anybody really cares about our opinions on college basketball because it's not why we come here to do this. But I firmly believe in terms of talking about all of our three alma maters, uh, Bundy's team is probably in the worst position with Creighton and the... Big East, I believe they need to win the tournament, obviously. Um, you, on the other hand, with Dayton, you're probably a little bit more elevated, but I firmly believe it's win tournament or go home, or in that case, NIT. Yeah, it's definitely NIT bound for the Flyers unless they can pull together uh, three wins in the A-10 tournament. But at the same time, Dayton is only nine nine straight wins away from winning the Natty. <laughs> that's, look at it that way. We're nine nine away from the win the ship. That is, that's a good point. And then for Ohio State, with how their Big Ten tournament looks, I believe you have to win at least two against Indiana and then against Michigan State to feel comfortable. Well, you definitely have to beat Indiana. If you beat Indiana and lose to Michigan State, you're going to be a nervous wreck on Selection Sunday. But I believe two wins put you in solidly, that they'll look at that Michigan State win and put you above maybe this weak bubble that you're on. But if you lose that Indiana game, you might as well start packing up and getting ready for, for the NIT because it's over at that point. Hey, maybe we'll see a, uh, a Buckeye Flyer NIT matchup. I was just about to say that. And I, that's Honestly, from an Ohio State perspective, everybody will tell you that's the worst case scenario. You don't win. Like you don't, if you're Ohio State, you don't win in that situation. You either win the game you're supposed to, or you lose it, and you're the laughing stock. No matter who they play in, maybe it's a little bit different with a school like Cincinnati, but with a team that's in a mid-major conference like Dayton, and it's in-state, there's no win-win. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would agree with that because if speaking as a Flyer alum, if but you that's got, beautiful with you, you don't yeah, have the expectation of exactly. it, and if you win, it's like. 
exuberance. Oh, I will glad. I really hope there's a matchup like that. I'd rather do that than losing the first round of the NCAA tournament, just because then I can proudly wear flyer stuff around uh, around the city and just know that people are going to be pissed off at me. Yeah, I mean, well, if it's in the NIT, I don't know if you're really going to get anybody from Columbus fired up because they barely go to games anyways. So. Well, um, I mean, that's fair, but still, I can always then hang that over any Ohio State fan that would like to say anything about their basketball program over the next five years. I mean, like, well, remember that one time when you lost to Dayton? I mean, I still do that now with the, um, what was that, 2014 NCAA tournament? I mean, that's fine. I mean, what we almost lost to Kent State in the NIT a couple of years ago. Uh, I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but a few years ago, you were in a situation where you were down to the wire with Kent State. Like, if you would have lost that game, I'm not sitting here today saying, damn, we lost to Kent State how many years ago? Like, well, there's no Kent it State sucks, alum- and there's nothing you can do with it, but... Yeah, well, I mean, there's no Kent St- You don't really know any Kent State alums that would rub it in your face, whereas you know I will never let you hear the end of that. Well, until I, they I play don't again. know if that's necessarily true. I do know a lot of people from a lot of different schools, not to brag or anything. But, I mean, <laughs> you do, along the way, meet people from those different aspects, and... If it's in the, in the NIT, it's not going to bother me. But if it's like an NCAA tournament, obviously it's going to bother you because you care a lot more. If you're in the NIT, you're just like, in my aspect, if I'm thinking for Ohio State, I'm thinking that's just it's an awesome opportunity for this young team to get more practice time and more games underneath themselves because there's a lot of freshmen and sophomores on this roster that need more time. And that's fine. That's developmental. Uh, in years past, there's been more veteran teams that have underperformed. And it's like, what's the point? Other than you're just getting to see the team play more and more, but that's a completely different topic. It's not why we're here today, because we need to get into diving into today, as in March 11th, is the first day that team representatives can talk to the agents of players that are about to be free agents starting on March 13th, or as we'd like to say, hump day. (laughs) I am very excited for free agency, just because Dorsey works very quickly. We saw this last year. Uh, going into the opening of free agency and the start of the new NFL year, I believe he had, within three days, he had made three different trades and we signed seven different uh, unrestricted free agents. So I, Dorsey's the type of guy that he works quickly, he sees something, wants to go get it. So I'm very excited for this upcoming week just to see how the the look of the Browns is just going to change. So a name we just saw actually as of this recording Sunday there's a name that's been circling the wagons around Cleveland aspects of talking heads, and it's defensive end like edge rusher Justin Houston from the Chiefs has been released. Uh, pretty hefty contract. It was hard to move if you're the Chiefs, and at that point, it's better to just save some cap money and cut him now than hold him on your roster. Uh, I didn't. We've talked about him in the past. I didn't know what exactly. Now that we know that it's not going to really cost you any capital. Other than, or not capital, but like picks or players mm-hmm. to get him. What do you think about bringing a guy like him on, or is his number a little bit too high for you? I mean, I'm I'm fine with bringing in any type of veteran leadership. I mean, he's not he's at age uh, he will be going into his age thirty season, and he was fairly uh, fairly productive last year. I mean, he had thirty seven uh, combo tackles and uh, twenty eight solos. So I mean, he he will bring you uh, some some level of production with that, and then, like I said too, more than anything, I'm fine with bringing in some veteran leadership. I mean, he played 12 games last year, so I mean, he he like I said, he's getting up there in age, but I mean, he didn't play a whole year last year, 
So, I mean, it should be pretty fresh, I would say. It's When we looked at this last, we didn't really get the whole spectrum of who, who was going to be uh, franchise tagged and whatnot. So a lot of those guys that we had high on our board started to fall off, like a Grady Jarrett from the Falcons. He eventually got the tag. He will be staying in Atlanta for at least another season. But there are some guys that are still out there that were not tagged that would be interesting. And I, I think one that pops off the page right away for me, and he's a defensive end for the Patriots, is Trey Flowers. Um, he's not the prototypical pass rusher from the outside, but he can do everything well from a variety of positions, almost like your perfect Swiss Army knife, if you want to put it like that, for a modern defense. Uh, I I just He pops off the page of me to me with how disruptive he was in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that would work out really well with us. The only issue is, and I think we can get into it now, that's great if you would love to add him. And we'll talk about the trade for Olivier Vernon later on. He's like that top guy at a position that's so premium. But you almost developed depth at that position when you traded for Vernon, and now you have almost too much depth. And when I mean that, I'm saying Emmanuel Agba. That's the guy that's kind of left out in this situation. He might lose his starting position in all of this if you don't move him inside, which I don't think they will do. Yes, Trey Flowers is the best available guy I see right now that they could pick up. But here's my question. Is it really a need anymore? No, I especially with adding Olivier Vernon. There I it defensive end is not a not a need whatsoever. Like you said, we just kind of have a surplus, which isn't a bad thing cuz then you can cycle guys through cuz at this point it doesn't matter if you're a starter or not. Like if you do platoon if you will, your D linemen keep them fresh and meanwhile you're going up against the same offensive tackle out there every every offensive snap. So, I mean, it allows you to recycle guys, get fresh legs out there, and just keep applying a lot of pressure, which is something that we need to see out of this defense. So I think adding depth will allow our defense to stay fresh and then be able to apply more pressure to both the pass and uh, the rushing game as well. Uh, so with Vernon, you're getting a guy that's he's, he's labeled as a pass rusher, but I believe he was considered an outside linebacker in like a 3-4 scheme. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if that moving him inside to an like a, a standard four three defense with an actual like hand on the ground type of end, how would how would that work out for him? I mean, it it's gonna be kinda hard to tell just because physically you are starting in a different position. Although more more today than any other time in football, you'll see guys that are starting in a two point stance as opposed to a three point stance, especially when they're coming off the edge. So, I, I mean, I think it will apply, like you said, the, the right amount of pressure. But I, I'm definitely excited to kind of see him play. Obviously, I mainly only focus on Browns games, so I don't get to see as many of the uh, the other teams, the other players. So I, I'm kind of excited for spring training, training excuse me, the preseason. And just uh, kind of separates. And then, like you said, that's the perfect time to try out, move him around a little bit, and see how he's able to uh, attack the rush in the path. Last year, he was, like I said, been playing through a lot of tough injuries that the Giants have pretty much needed him for. Uh, in 11 games, he had seven sacks. Pretty good. And also, 21 back. That is the biggest thing, because even if you don't sack the quarterback, if you're able to just hit him a few times, then you know that in the back of his head, he's always thinking, oh, I could get hit right now. So then that you can see a little bit more inaccuracy out of quarterback or getting worried about getting hit. Because we all know quarterbacks, they don't like being on the ground. They're soft if you will in that 
But I I think if you, if you can knock a quarterback down a few times early in a the game, then he will be thinking about you the rest of the game. And like I said, that just it creates a lapse in concentration, which like you said, you can see more inconsistencies in their accuracy, or they'll be looking more to check down quicker and not willing to stay in the pocket and try and take a deep throw. Uh, you'll be seeing more checkdowns and. Honestly, if you can limit that, then that just makes playing defense so much easier if you know that he's going to be looking short and quick as opposed to waiting for a, a long bomb. And also tying in with this whole free agency, you can talk to agents things starting today. Uh, we also got to dive into a little bit of the restricted free agents that the Browns have that you can also start um, offering the qualifying contracts for starting tomorrow. Uh, specifically, the biggest one is Rashad Higgins, Hollywood Higgins. Uh, you also have a receiver who, quite honestly, contracts have been pretty slim between uh, Perriman and the Browns, the other wide receiver that is on the market. So my question to you is, is as we finish up this topic, I am confident they'll bring back Higgins. I, I think that's been their initiative is to bring him back. They put him on, what was this, his qualifying tender, which is yeah. where he was drafted, which was like a fifth-round pick. Right. What he's tendered at. Um, I don't have any doubts that they'll bring him back. My only doubt is is whether Perriman took the opportunity of his big season and goes elsewhere, or the Browns can find a way to keep him and bring back. But is it, is it worth it for a what's left on the market, which you can get out there, and b which you could probably get through the draft? Does it all make sense together to bring him back and go to the number he wants, or is it time to let him go and thank him for the miraculous turnaround he had from the Ravens' career to the Browns' career? See, I'm I'm definitely more in on Higgins than I am Perriman. Perriman was great. And I think if the price is right for Perriman, I'm completely fine with bringing him back. But if someone blows us out of the water with, with an offer, then I think that we should just let him walk and say thank you uh, and just see what's out there in the draft. Because there's, there's a few different wide receivers out there in this draft that if they fall to number 17 pick, I'm fine with taking. Or if you want to pick up a guy in the second and third round, I'm fine with that too because we we have a decent enough depth at wide receiver now based off of Higgins doing well and Perriman. So I we can allow one of them to walk and then just draft another wide receiver. And then also too, we don't know what Dorsey has in mind for free agency. He might there might be someone out there that he has his eye on that he just wants to go get. So I mean, it, at this point in time, it's it's hard to tell what Dorsey is thinking, but I'm sure we will know within the next by the end of the week, what his plans are for addressing a lot of the different needs that the Browns have. All right, so when we come back, we will dive into the spring training of the Indians. Who is performing well, who is not, and who is going to be on the cut line for this roster? We'll dive into that next. It's a Bundy-free episode. And that's always good because whenever we start talking about the Indians or the tribe or baseball in general, it just seems like he likes he loves to turn it into his own little narrative. Yeah. Especially with the Red Sox. <laughs> I uh I just can't stand it sometimes. I have a lack of words because I want to stay very uh PG. This is this is a clean podcast. We we advertise a clean podcast. There's no E next to our names. All I'll say is is that I love getting this time just the two of us to nerd out and talk about this because he comes and just tries to rain on the parade. With that being said, it's time to talk about how spring training has gone thus far. 
Uh, Sunday night, the Indians pick up their ninth win of spring training, a 16-2 drubbing of the Seattle Mariners. And it took a little bit of time, but they, they got to Felix Hernandez. And more specifically, a guy that I love, and I love him, was the guy that started going, was this outfielder, Oscar Mercado, who the Indians got last year late in the season from the Cardinals. Um, as we've said in the past, this is a guy that's converted from shortstop to the outfield. Currently, he's listed as a center fielder, but honestly, I don't see why he couldn't play all the all three spots in the outfield. And that's important because we need to talk about this outfield. You know, it's getting that time. We need to start focusing on who is going to contribute for you because all offseason off long, we've heard about who is going to fill out this outfield. How is the outfield going to perform? It has one of the worst wars in Major League Baseball. And we're starting to get some clarity. Some guys that we thought were just going to walk into a position are starting to fade away like Jordan Leplow. Or I Honestly, I heard a different pronunciation of his name yesterday, but I'm not even going to try. We're just going to go with Leplow from now on. I like Leplow. Yeah, we love that because I don't know if he's going to be sticking around a whole lot, whole, whole lot longer, at least on a major league level. They'll probably go down to AAA Columbus. But we need to get into this conversation. I, I know you want to bring it up. Is What is this outfield looking like and... Is it time for the Indians to stop worrying about service time with some of these guys? Oh, definitely. This is not the time to be conservative with players' contracts. The window is now, and that's if it is even open now. So this is the time to be going for it. So, no, I'm all in on Mercado making the roster right now because he is currently hitting 444 with a uh, with slugging percentage of 889. And he's only 24 years old, and he's doing this. I mean, Grant, yes, it is spring training. But still, you have to look at the fact that, okay, because everyone going into spring training, everyone's looking at Luplo as, okay, he might be, the, might be the guy. And he still could be. But right now, he is only hitting 105. 105 versus a 444. That is substantially... That is a substantial difference. Yeah, that's it, not. Yeah, that's not very good. Sorry to interrupt, but there's. I mean, there's other guys on the list. You know, a Daniel Johnson, who's also on this list. He's probably a little bit young. He's probably a year away, maybe a year and a half, depending on how the Indians want to take it. But I mean, he's hitting 261 on base percentage, around 393, and then MLB journeyman Trace Thompson. Look at him. He's hitting 292 with an on base percentage of 346. You're getting these young guys producing, and I mean, this isn't like small at bats either. They're getting. They're all north of 20 at-bats. Right. So they're getting their reps, and they're playing pretty well. And here's Luplo with around 19, and he's in the basement. I mean, there there is time. And also, too, this is what concerns me about this spring training is the fact that it may not mean anything based off of comments that Tito had made going into it. And early in spring training when he said that, oh, I don't really like to look at spring training stats as my decision for who makes the roster. What else are you going to look at? Like, you can't... Well, I think your buddy, Jason Kipnis, taught him that last year. Am I correct? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I, this but is I a- get what you're saying. These unproven guys or unknown guys that are coming up, like a Trace Thompson that was a, a non-roster invite that you really... I mean, you kind of know a little bit about. You probably could have scouted what he did with the White Sox uh, when he was with L.A., stuff like that. But you don't really know what you got until you give them the reps. And what other way to decide that is, A, the, the statistics, and B, what you're seeing with your physical eyes? 
Yeah, and I, I haven't been able to see many, many spring training games. Well, so. nobody has because it's not really on TV much. Well, yeah, but I mean, so I don't, I can't really see defensively how Mercado's playing. And I mean, I haven't heard anything that says, oh, we dropped the ball three times or anything like that. And more than anything, I'm concerned with your ability to hit. Because we're, we know, we know what defense is. And yeah, it can cost you, but at this point, I'm more concerned with our offense because uh, I brought it up earlier earlier in this, uh, not this particular podcast, but we had four guys hitting over 250 last year. So offense is the biggest thing. So, I mean, to see someone that is young and able to play the outfield hitting over 400 right now with, he has 27 at-bats using 444. That is amazing. He needs, if he keeps this up for the rest of spring training, there's no way he cannot be on the opening day roster. Here's the funny part of what you just said. Actually, what a lot of scouts say is with Mercado, is his number one thing that he needs to work on or his tool that's kind of lesser than the others is his hitting tool. And he's hitting over 400 right now. Um, Early returns from his experiments in the outfield, especially when he was in the, the minor league system with the Cardinals, is that the transition from the infield to the outfield helped him a lot. And what they learned with, with his time out there is that he's got a pretty good arm. I, I've seen it a couple times in some of the games that have been on MLB Network, the live games, that he's had a pretty good arm out there in outfield. So I don't know if defensive, if you're thinking of defensively, I don't think he's going to hurt you. If anything, it sounds like he's doing really well, and it's somewhere he excels. And if anything, what he needs to work on is the hitting. Well, he's already getting early returns on that. What, what hurts you from trying him right away and seeing what you got in him? Absolutely nothing. I mean, okay, we have Bradley Zimmer, who is on the cusp of somewhat making return. Uh, coming into either today or yesterday, he was supposedly supposed to be making throws from the outfield to different bases. So, I mean, he's Which getting... is big, because one of the biggest aspects of his game is his arm in the outfield. Right. So, I mean, he he's on the cusp of coming back, but at the same time, like I feel like trying to rush him back for opening day is just, it's not necessary at all. Because we have him under control until 2024. So, I mean, the last thing you need to do with someone young like him is to rush him back because you have so long with him. So there's no point in risking a further injury that could potentially maybe even uh, take his career off the rails. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, that's all you. Uh, Just one quick question. Obviously, we don't get worried about stats, but, you know, you can't get it out of your head. It rolls over from the playoffs. It rolls over from the past two playoffs that Jose Jose Ramirez has not been able to hit in those moments, and he didn't in the last couple of games we saw. It's vivid. Uh, he struggled early on here in spring training. Has there been, at obviously stats don't always tell the story, but has there been anything that's really concerned you? I mean, it's all a little bit concerning, but I still have faith. He's a good player, and I really don't believe that the two, three years that he was playing at a high elite level before this is, I don't think that that was an anomaly. I think that him going through a slump now is more the anomaly. So I, I expect to see him coming back and getting his batting average up. So like you said, he's only hitting 200 right now with 20 at bats. So, I mean, I, I expect him to come back and get back to his norm. So I, I'm not at this point in time, I am not worried. Here's another guy that we haven't talked a whole lot about this preseason, this spring training, but another guy that's hitting over the 400 clip, it's Greg Allen. 
I mean, this is a guy that could be a classic leadoff hitter for you. He's got the speed. He gets on base. If he's hitting, obviously, you're not expecting him to hit over 400 during the season. But if he's getting, I don't know, 250 and north, which he did last year in the amount of time he played, if he's hitting over the 260, 265 clip and is getting on base and is stealing 20, 25 bags this year, that could be a guy that could start. I don't know if you're just going to platoon him, but that's almost everyday starter type of leadoff guy for most teams. Am I wrong? No, not at all. Not at all. And the, right now, okay, just going off of this point in spring training, and Grant, they are all listed as center fielders, but I want Mercado, Greg Allen, and Martin. Because Martin's also hitting 409. Same amount of bats. They each have, actually, they're very identical. Nine hits, three runs scored. Uh, Greg does have one home run. So, I mean, right now, as of this point, that's my starting outfield. It's funny to say that because if you asked me that a week ago, I would have said you were crazy. Right, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the thing. is The guys you expected, I, wasn't Tyler Naquit a first-round pick? Was uh, he, he a first or a second? I'll have to look that up later. But why would you talking about him? But I just this guy's concerning me right now. He had a really I mean, you couldn't have a better start than he did in the spring training. He hit a bomb to right field. And it looked like what we've expected for the longest time. That guy has some pop in his bat. But the issue is, is the strikeouts. He has seven. I think that's tied for highest. Uh, no, he's L- L- tied L- for second. L- Luplo has eight. Does he really? Well, that, that that explains everything. And actually, Bowers has ten. So you're starting to see what Bowers is. He can hit for average, but he's also going to. He's either hitting or striking out. Yeah. But uh, I I just want your take on, not necessarily who's going to start, but what what does the depth look like in terms of outfield? Like, how do you make these? This decision. I mean, like I said, I, I'm all about the stats. So, like I said, I already listed the top three guys I want to see. And, like, I I would like to give Bowers the the benefit of the doubt and the fact that he can play first base in the outfield. So, I mean, that you have a little bit of versatility there. And then it's honestly also going to depend on how Hanley does uh, as to whether or not you want to have – like, if Hanley doesn't make the roster, then you ideally will probably then make Santana your DH. So then that will leave you a gap then at first base. So, I mean, you have a little bit of versatility there with Bowers. Uh, but, I mean, Luplo, 105 ain't cutting it. No, of course not. No, you. I mean, you're not staying up on the big league team with that. No. I, um, I, if it's any other name and not some new guy that walks in the door, I think he's part of that group like Bobby Bradley that just got sent down the AAA, the AAA camp. Um, yeah, to make things worse, I just looked it up. Tyler Naquin was the 15th overall pick in the 2012 MLB June Amateur Draft out of Texas A&M. That is, it, it's starting to look concerning. Yeah, I, I don't. We expected big things of him when he first made his appearance back in, I believe it was 2016. Yeah, it was 2016, where he hit nearly 300 in his at bats. Yeah, no, he was borderline on the cusp of maybe making a somewhere a run for rookie of the year. Like he, I believe he came in third. Okay, exactly. So I mean, he and plus two, he was just knocking the ball out of the park left and right. Like he couldn't have really had that much of a of, of a better start in your rookie year, and then to see him just kind of fall to where he is now, it's it it is concerning for him, for sure. I I'm not going to lose my my mind with him right now. I I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt because he's proven that he when he's healthy, 
he's going to hit near that 260 mark on average when he gets up into the big leagues. But if we don't see anything in return right away, I think because of our flexibility with the outfield, I think we have the ability to just flip the switch and move on to somebody else real fast. It doesn't mean you need to just cast him off. Right. I mean, that's why you have the farm system. Well, yeah. And, I mean, you're talking about this outfield where it it's shaky because Naquin, if you don't perform right away, who's to say that and Tito's in love with Daniel Johnson, who we just acquired in the trade with Jan Gomes. Yeah. Who's to say he's not the first guy in line to say, hey, Naquin, you're going down. Bring him up, Daniel Johnson, and let's get this rolling. Let's get the young guys in, and let's play right now with our talent that we have that we're developing. Yeah, and I that's the beauty of having having depth. And uh, so, I mean, I, I'm 100% fine with that. And then, honestly, too, it's just all going to come down to roster decisions as far as how I view players. Because, okay, say Naquin, he starts off and he doesn't do well, then 1% I'm fine with getting him sent down. But then my, my thing is, okay, once you send him down and then I don't want to be force-fed someone that then isn't performing, and say actually like Naquin turns, the, turns it around, starts hitting well at AAA, then I, I just don't want to be stuck in a situation because we have so much depth that we are seeing subpar performances from the guys that are up on the major league level. And one more name I want to touch on before we move on to the next topic. Uh, it's a name we talked about before spring training started, and we got the news that Francisco Lindor could be questionable around opening day weekend. And it's a name that's gone pretty quietly during talk. I mean, for how well he's doing, I haven't heard his name enough, and it's Yu Chang. Yeah, I mean, he's hitting 300 right now and 20 at-bats. So, I mean, I, I feel comfortable now, and I, this should take a lot of pressure to rush Lindor back just because we know we're not throwing, if he keeps this up, we know we're not just throwing someone that's completely incompetent out there at shortstop. So I feel confident that he'll be able to be of good service while we're waiting on Lindor's return. So I I, I am very happy to see, uh, see Chang doing well. And then w- one more thing. We talked about it a little bit a couple shows ago, but... In terms of the catch position and how will they perform that with a, maybe a platoon or maybe a guy plays more than the other, I mean, at this point, is Pilecki playing his way into the top guy role? I mean, he is hitting 294, whereas Roberto's only hitting 190. But, and again, I, I'm not sure how well Pilecki's, Pilecki is doing on the defensive end. Sure. But Robo did throw out three, four guys the other day. So, I mean, his defense is amazing at this point so i mean it's it's going to come down to okay which one do you value more hitting or defense and like i said i haven't seen plowecki play defensively i just know that robo has been on a tear recently with throwing throwing guys out at second and third base so honestly i'm okay with going with a subpar hitter as long as i know that okay no one can run on you because that saves so much. Like, keeping a runner at first base, it completely changes the situation than if the runner is able to advance to second base. Yes, I completely agree with you. My only question is, is the X factor will be, and I, like we said, we haven't been able to watch a lot of it because, I mean, go figure, the games aren't on TV very much. But seeing the defensive prowlness of Plawecki, I mean, if, if he's at least serviceable behind the plate and he, you can respect him on the base pass... And he hits like this during the season when he gets his opportunities. It's gonna—I mean—it's really going to test Tito's loyalty, the guys he loves and knows very well. And I, I don't think there's any shame in going with uh, having 
Roberto start three games out of any rotation and having Polowiecki start two. Or if you just kind of want to alternate. I I don't think there's any shame in that. And Roberto's gone through that. He went through that with Jan, we platooned. Especially towards the uh, the end of Jan when he was batting a little bit of injury there. So, I mean, that's... Like I said, I don't here's think... my thing. That was more of a... I don't want to put percentages on it, but that almost felt like it was more of an 80-20 in terms of Jan. What do you think the percentage would be? That's probably a better way to put it. Is how, how do you see it playing out in terms of playing time? I mean, definitely to start off the season, I'm expecting more of like a ninety, like a ninety percent Roberto starting, and then I think it's just wow. all like I, cause I mean, especially with what Tito said earlier, like going into spring training, he said that he was going to stand by, stand by Roberto, like he's our number one guy. So I mean, I going off of that, I believe that's how things are going to start, and then just depending on Roberto's pr- production at the plate, I think it. We might see some variation in that, especially if Pulwicki's hitting the cover off the ball when he's playing and being serviceable behind the plate. But I definitely think Roberto's going to start off starting a lot more. And then I hope at least that Tito will be willing to adjust and open to that if if the stats are pointing towards that it should happen. When we come back, we will dive into the trade between Zeitler and Olivier Vernon and then also... We have sort of news. We have a verbal agreement for Antonio Brown. He is going to be on the move, supposedly. We'll talk about what that means for the NFL next. Final segment of the program. Lots going on with the NFL. Lots going on right now within the next couple of days. A lot of news that's going to be happening that, quite honestly, we can't even anticipate right now. But we can do our best effort. (laughs) And uh, what we can start off with is what we know. And what we know is that there's an agreed-upon trade. And the key words is agreed-upon because, obviously, nothing can be official yet until the new league year, Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern time. But we know that Kevin Zeitler the offensive guard for the Browns, or formerly for the Browns, traded on his birthday nonetheless to the Giants for, let's just call him an edge rusher, depending on where they want to put him in their lineup, to the Browns, Olivier Vernon. Zach, when you first heard this trade, what went through your head? You know, I was definitely excited for it, because as we discussed earlier, it does add depth on the defensive side. And honestly, oh, it adds a lot more than that. I mean, you're, you're sticking in a guy that could, I mean, he's a perennial pro bowler when healthy. Right. And then more than that, I felt like we didn't give up too much in giving up Zeitler. Because, uh, I mean, that was $10 million in, uh, in cap space per year for the next two years. Or well, three years, including this year. So, I mean, I felt like we, like I said, we didn't give up too much at all. Because uh, I felt like it was a big contract. And Zeitler was serviceable. But I wouldn't say he was worth what we were paying him. If I'm correct... I believe there was also some picks that were swapped that wasn't really mentioned in the mainstream media. Because I, I remember guys like Daryl Ruder from 92.3, the fan in Cleveland, tweeting out like an updated list of picks. Um, it might have been like a fifth rounder that they picked up and they might have swapped another, I, I don't know, honestly, because it wasn't covered enough. But some people were posting it and I couldn't find any verification on it. But uh, just on the onset, I just want to say this, obviously, in like everybody's saying, this proves a point of Dorsey's confidence in Austin Corbett. 
the offensive guard slash te- or center, wherever you want to play him, pretty much on the offensive line guy out of Nevada. Uh, funny enough, you, I believe you're going to have two te- or two guards on your line that are from Nevada, from Reno, the same school. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, but no, that that honestly shows the confidence they have in Corbett to come in and immediately play on that right side of the line next to J.C. Treader. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it. I, I'm confident in that, and so I don't think we necessarily need to go out and maybe grab a guard on the free agent market. But I do. I would like to see this addressed in the draft at some point, just so then that way you have a guy that you can develop a little bit and be able to plug in a little bit down the road here. So I, I, I'm confident in our offensive line that we are still we're going to be fine. I still think we need to address address the fact that we lost, uh, or not that we lost, but uh, our left tackle situation. Because I mean, Greg Robinson was fine. We did extend a what was that was that just for this it was just year? a one year deal. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, again, that's another position I like to see addressed at the draft. And like I said. You draft a young guy, you don't have to throw him out there. Just let him learn the pace of the NFL. So I am 100% fine with that. And then also, too, by drafting like a left tackle, then you're able to have someone that can fill in in case of injury or say Gray Robinson doesn't isn't as productive as you had hoped that he would be. So I'm okay with that. It's it's important to note also, it's, it's weird to think about. I think Greg Robinson's only like 25 or 26. For as much as he's moved around in his NFL short NFL career already, he's still a young guy. That being said, I don't know if he's the future. I agree with you. I think if they focus on any position on the offensive line, it's going to be that tackle spot. I, I believe there's a lot of rumors that this uh, trade getting Olivier Vernon almost guarantees that it won't be an edge rusher of any type. You still have a chance of it being defensive tackle, but more so, they believe it could be offensive line, which I, I don't hate. That's fine. We'll get into all the semantics of it once we get closer to the draft itself and whether you should trade down and get an offensive tackle that you can get later on or whatever. We can talk about that later, but just off the point, it, it makes you rethink how they're going to attack the first round, at least the first round, and maybe even that if you want to get more descriptive with it, maybe how they attack the middle rounds. Because we have, what, three fifth-round picks right now. So whether they use those to trade up and move or whether they take those as value picks, those are perfect spots where they can probably get somebody in that range. Right. And like I said, we will have a more clear picture by the time of our next podcast, I'm assuming. with Because Dorsey knows at this point what he wants to address in free agency and what he wants to attack in the draft. So I think we'll have a, a more clear picture on what he thinks would be better suited for a free agent as opposed to bringing in a young guy and developing. So we, we should definitely have a definitely a more clear picture by our next podcast on where Dorsey's mind is with everything. And it seems like forever since we did one of these podcasts, but it's because of so much rumor mill stuff that's been going on with trades involving the Browns and rumors and something big's happening. I don't know necessarily if this trade for Olivier Vernon was the big thing that was brewing in people's minds. Uh, everybody would say that's not the case. It was actually for a different player on the Giants, OBJ, Odell Beckham Jr. And when I heard the rumored offering that supposedly the Giants were just scoffing at, it was Kevin Zeitler, another player, and then maybe some picks, like plural picks. I don't know if I wouldn't want to invest that type of capital into a wide receiver 
nonetheless a receiver that, I mean, in his own right has some attitude issues, just like Antonio Brown, which we'll talk about later. Well, I think with OBJ's personality issues are definitely being, they're being forgotten right now, given what's happened with Antonio Brown over the last, well, since uh, the start of last season with everything that's been going on with them. Uh, I do, I, I think it is interesting that the Giants were laughing at it, whereas I'm looking at it as we're giving up too much for that. I, yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like there's such a void there that I don't see this happening. I think it's just more of people wishful thinking. I mean, we kind of saw it a little bit with on the uh, on the Twitter machine with people uh, entertaining the idea of, oh, what if the Indians go out and get Bryce Harper? <laughs> right. So I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's just like you have that you have that name, and you're just like, oh, I would love to see him on there, and then you don't really think about what it would actually cost to bring that player in. So, I mean, would I love to see OBJ in a Browns uniform? Sure. Do I want to give up that much for him? No, not at all. Funny sidetrack. You see the first road series for the Phillies coming up during the regular season? No. At the Nationals. Oh, boy. Get a three-game stint there. That I, will be appointment television, let me tell you. Yeah, I am definitely expecting national broadcast for that. But I think it's kind of an accepted idea that at least in this day and age, with how many wide receivers that have flopped in the first round, people tend to feel more safe by trading for wide receivers. But it's it's an argument that people can have is just at what point is it too much? At what point is it saying, you know what, that's way too much. Let's take our chances on a guy that we have high upside in the draft. Right, and I I don't think that it's necessarily anything that was actually going on. I think it was more of just people getting excited wanting wanting to see something happen. So I, I don't think that that was necessarily something that Dorsey really even offered. Because like we said, I, I feel like that was too much for one player. And I don't think Dorsey would have done that. So like, like I said, I, we'll never know what actually, like we'll never know what potential offers were made to teams. So I mean, there's no way of knowing for sure. But I, I have to think that that was all just complete speculation. And there's actually like zero truth to that. And then another player that left the Browns in the past couple of days was Jamie Collins, who was in part of that grouping of guys like Justin Houston where their team was trying to trade them in their big contract, but they just ultimately could not find a suitor for said contract. They had to cut them. Uh, This linebacker position is really, really fascinating to me. So we have one guy in Joe Sherbert who statistically had a down year for his standards, uh, especially in the run game. Uh, You also have a guy in Christian Kirksey who honestly can't stay healthy. That's always a concern. And now you're losing Jamie Collins. So this is, I mean, it's, I feel like on the defensive side of the ball, this might be that one wild card group in terms of that defense. Yeah, I would agree. I'm 100% fine with cutting Collins. When we first got him, I was excited about it just because he was pretty much started every game with the Patriots, who obviously a very good team. I don't know if you knew that or not over the last, last few years. No, not too bad. So, I mean, I was very excited for it, and then after watching him play, I can understand why they wanted to get rid of him, because he was serviceable when he played and played like he wanted to play, but I saw way too many times last year where it was very noticeable that he was just taking plays off, and say he he dropped into coverage on one side, the play went to the other side, and he didn't just stand there, wouldn't really chase after the ball. So I, I brought it up 
brought this up before, but I I don't like seeing that whatsoever. To me, that's just a lack of laziness, and then just not not holding up your your defense and kind of letting everyone else on the team down with that. So I'm 100 fine with making this cut. And then also too, this does give the Browns now the third most cap space in the uh, going into 2019. But I, I thought this trade for Olivia Vernon uh, kind of reshuffled it at that point. At the time of the cut, it was the third. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm completely fine with moving on from that. I mean, he was I was excited then, and then now I just feel like the Browns organization has a point where okay, we're better than that. We don't have to deal with a player that is going to take plays off. Because before, like you would accept it, given that we were one in fifteen. So I mean, it. I like I said, I, this is good. That was a good move, in my opinion. See, it's. I agree with everything you just said, and I was about to say it too. It's funny that it's not really funny. It's disappointing to think about. You saw that, and I saw that too. Is he would take plays off routinely, and it, it quite honestly, it pissed me off. And to think about it, he was our leading tackler last year. Put that into perspective. He was playing, he was half-assing it and led our team in tackles. Right. I mean, he definitely had the potential, like, if you actually would have tried and gave your 100% on every play, I'm very curious to see where you'd be at. Because that is me. You would have, to me, that would have excelled you to a very, very high, I, I won't go say superstar level, but, I mean, he would have been a very high, very high-touted uh, person so, I mean, I like I said, I just wish that he would have played harder, and then if he would have done that, he'd still we would still have him. He'd still be getting paid. It's a position that we talked about this before the show. Linebacker is something that, like I just said, it's a wild card, and we were talking and discussing about you said you weren't comfortable with taking somebody in the linebacking spot, and just in terms of inside linebacker, you weren't interested in taking a guy early on, which I said I disagreed. I had one name. Devin White was my exception. I'm not interested in the likes of Devin Bush and whatnot. Those guys don't interest me. But the Devin White seems like a plug-and-play inside linebacker. My, I will preface this by saying my comment with that is I feel like middle linebacker is such a verbal position and you need a good form of leadership there. So I, it, what concerns me most is just, okay, how is the rest of the defense going to react to having a rookie in there? I mean, we've seen it. Obviously, it's, I mean, on the offensive side, we saw with Baker, a rookie coming in and just being a leader out there. So that that's honestly my biggest concern, whereas I'd like to see more of a, a guy that's proven himself and the he's proven his ability to play the position. So I feel like that's just more guaranteed, like you'll get respect from your teammates. So, like one of the one of the big names I am looking at would be C.J. Mosley from from the Ravens, who is a UFA, just because. Plus two, I love that wrinkle of okay, we he's gonna play his former team two times. He and also a good name is Anthony Barr out of Minnesota. Those are two good names. I think if you're putting yourself in the seat of John Dorsey, you're weighing the would I rather have a a very solid guy. Early in his prime, and not even to his prime, obviously, he's, what, 22, 21, 22. You're getting him that early. He's that talented. Yeah, you can take the chance on what do you think he can lead the defense in the middle like that, but would, would you rather have that talent on a rookie deal or spend all that money focusing on a guy like Barr or a guy like Mosley? That depends on how you want to divvy up your cap space, and that's fine. If they have that much importance or that much emphasis on the position, I have no problem with that. But if they're looking to fill other spots like the offensive line, like we talked about, maybe a cornerback, 
Uh, I would probably set the precedence of putting out the big money shelved towards those positions if that's what they feel and taking a rookie guy if, if you get the chance at 17. But then again, with free agency starting essentially now mm-hmm. in the draft, not even for another month and a half, like you don't really have that flexibility to take the chance on that unless if you feel absolutely confident there's a name that's going to fall to you at 17 or maybe later in the draft, like a Gennard Avery that we got last year out of Memphis, which is great, but he's not the same position, but that's the point I'm trying to make. You have to make that executive decision now because Mosley's going to be gone by that point. Right, yeah, no. And like I said, we... It's funny because we're we're speculating on this right now, and I guarantee Dorsey knows what he's doing. What? He, oh my God, he knew Baker Mayfield back in the fall before the draft last year. Right. So I just, I mean, it's a little different now because you know that there's a lot of variance that can happen over the course of 16 picks before you, whereas last year having the number one pick. But like he knows what free agents he wants to address, and I guarantee that he has a price range for said player and what he's willing to give up. And if the player's asking for too much, then okay, next on the list. He he's very systematic and everything, so he, whatever he goes with, I have full faith in though. Well, I'll say this: that was one of the more productive shows we've ever had compared to what Bundy's ever offered. Um, if he listens to this point of the show, he'll probably beat me out for it, but I guarantee he won't. So I have no issue in saying that. Uh, is there any last words you want to say signing off for this week in episode number seven? R.I.P. Bundy. T's and P's, thoughts and prayers. Get better, uh, bud. Get better. I mean, that that would involve him not well, being all right, but obviously he's doing well. He's serving up steak right now and eating good. Well, I guess I should say be better, Bundy. Well, we could say that almost every day. <laughs> all right, thank you for listening. We will be back next week for episode eight. Until then, roll tribe. So get on.